welcome. Great that you can be here and joining us as we look at God's Word together. In case we haven't met before, I'm Lachlan. I look after the 9am congregation that meets here at Camaray. And this morning as we look at God's Word, uh, we're thinking about leaders. Raising up leaders is big business. In the US alone, in 2019, uh, it was recorded as a $366 billion a year industry. Uh, Training up leaders is big business. And it's not surprising it's an area of big business because our leaders have a significant impact on the people that follow them. It's true of nations, it's true of companies, it's true of sports teams, of community groups. Whatever level you zoom into, leaders have a significant impact on the people following them. And it's particularly true when it comes to the bigger questions of life and meaning. There are many people who claim to have the answers for life, but the question is, who, if anyone, is worth following? That's the big question that we're considering today as we look at this next part of John's biography of Jesus. And we're going to look at the passage together in two chunks. First, we'll consider verse 1 to 21. Then we're going to look at verse 22 to 42 to the end. Uh, They're two different interactions that Jesus has with people, uh, but they're both dealing with the question of who will you follow? And we're going to finish up our time together reflecting a little bit on what God's word has to say to us today. So we'll wrestle with the two chunks of the passage and then think about uh, what it has to say to us today. And as we start reading the passage, or as you think about uh, the reading that Jen uh, gave before from the passage, at first it might seem kind of removed from our experience today, but as we think carefully about what Jesus says here, uh, it has plenty to both challenge us and uh, and comfort us with. Uh, Whether you'd claim to be a follower of Jesus or not, in this story we're going to see Jesus push us to consider who we are following uh, or what we're pursuing and whether it can really deliver. And if you are a follower of Jesus, we are going to see how we can be comforted and and encouraged by his leadership and what he gives to his followers. Well, let's start with verse 1 to 21. See, as we look at this passage that Jesus, uh, that we're looking at today, and we start with Jesus telling a nice story. It's about shepherds, it's about sheep, it's about thieves and robbers. But as nice as the story is, as we look at those first five verses, uh, my reaction is something, goes something like this. It's sort of, hmm, hmm, yeah, uh, wait, what? I mean... It sounds sort of deep and profound and nice, but when you think about it, I mean, what is Jesus getting at? Now, as lockdown continues, I feel like my ability to focus on things and to understand things uh, has been on a steady downwards trajectory, uh, so I do feel a little more than sympathy for the Pharisees who don't understand what Jesus is trying to say. Uh, You know, it sounds nice, but what is it all about? Well, as we wrestle with what Jesus is saying here, it's important to remember the context. Context is important, and there's two things for us to keep in the back of our mind as we think about what Jesus is saying here, uh, as he's talking about sheep and shepherds, etc. First, Jesus is actually continuing a speech that he began in the passage we looked at last week. Now, in case you missed it or can't remember, uh, last week we saw the Pharisees, uh, the religious leaders of the day, mistreating one of God's people. 
uh, we saw that there was a man who had been born blind and he was healed by Jesus. But he was healed on the Sabbath and the Pharisees weren't happy about this. They wanted this man to testify against Jesus. Now, all that this man had done was get healed and then tell them the truth about what had happened. But it wasn't the testimony the Pharisees wanted. They, he didn't tell them what they wanted to hear. And so, these religious leaders, they made an example of him. The religious leaders, they threw him out. They threw him out of the synagogue, effectively cutting him off from his community, cutting him off from his people. They used him and discarded him in order to build up their own power base. Later, as Jesus was comforting the man, uh, there were a couple of Pharisees with them. And they took some offence at what Jesus was saying to the man. They objected. They said, what? Are you saying we're part of the problem? And Jesus starts talking about sheep and shepherds. This story is set against the backdrop of a clear example of the failure of the spiritual leaders of the day to care for the people that they are meant to be caring for. But there's another bit of context that's worth keeping in mind. In the Old Testament, the leaders of God's people were often talked about in shepherd imagery. They were meant to be shepherds who cared for God's people, the sheep, as they led. They'd meant to keep caring for them, pointing them to God. But a problem that the Old Testament frequently addresses is the failure of Israel's leaders to do this. There's lots of parts of the Old Testament that, do, uh, that, that make this point, but one chapter where uh, we're going to focus on here with just a couple of examples is Ezekiel chapter 4. Uh, the whole chapter deals with shepherds and sheep and the failure of the leaders, but we've just got three verses here just to, to get the sense of what's going on. So Ezekiel 34 verse 2, this is what the Sovereign Lord says, "'Woe to you, shepherds of Israel, who only take care of yourselves. Should not shepherds take care of the flock?' Or Ezekiel 34.10, this is what the Sovereign Lord says, I am against the shepherds and will hold them accountable for my flock. I will remove them from tending the flock so that the shepherds can no longer feed themselves. I will rescue my flock from their mouths and it will no longer be food for them. Or Ezekiel 34.23, I will place over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he will tend them. He will tend them and be their shepherd. See, one of the persistent problems in Scripture is that the shepherds of God's people failed to lead the people to God. Instead, they exploited the people they were meant to be serving and caring for and pointing to God in order to make themselves more comfortable and build themselves up. They were more like thieves and robbers than they were shepherds. And back in Jesus' day, the Pharisees were the main option to turn to for spiritual leadership. And as we come to John 10, we have a clear example of the failure of the Pharisees to lead God's people. And it's not that this man fell through the cracks. He's someone who the Pharisees used to bolster their own position and instill fear in those who would oppose them. So as Jesus speaks, he's challenging his audience to consider who it is that they follow and where they will lead you to. Set against the backdrop of what the Pharisees have just done and a whole Old Testament's worth of critiquing failed leadership who care for themselves and their own power rather than caring for God's people. And he does it 
using this imagery of sheep and shepherds. Now, one of the confusing things as we look at what Jesus says here is that the way that Jesus deploys this figure of speech about all things ovine is that he deploys it in slightly different ways throughout his discourse. Uh, For example, Jesus is the gate as well as the good shepherd. Or he contrasts himself with robbers and thieves as well as hired hands. Uh, As the images shift, the thing to keep in mind is that Jesus is sketching out two alternatives of who people can follow. So firstly, in verse 7 to 10, Jesus draws out the two options. On the one hand, Jesus is the gate. He says he is the one that people need to go through to be saved and have pasture. Jesus has come that people might have life and have it to the full. If people want life, real life, they have to go through Jesus. And they can't get it anywhere else because the alternative are just robbers and thieves who are out to steal, kill and destroy. Verse 10, the thief comes only to steal, kill and destroy. I have come, they may have life and have it to the full. Jesus presents a stark choice between following him, the one who will lead to life, or the alternative, which is ultimately the path of death and destruction. Now, at one level, Jesus doesn't sound that different to the Pharisees. The Pharisees demand the blind blind man sided with him, and they threw him out for not following with them. I mean, is, is Jesus really that different? He says, I am the road to life. The alternative is the path to death. Both are drawing this stark contrast. But Jesus shows where the difference can be seen. Uh, As we continue there in verse 11 to 13, uh, Jesus claims he's the good shepherd, the longed-for good shepherd that God's people have been looking forward to, and the proof is in the fact that he lays down his life for his sheep. You see, the alternative, they're no more than hired hands who don't really care for the sheep. You know, they might tick the boxes doing the job as the day rolls on, but they're just doing it for a wage because it keeps food on the table. They're in it for them. When the demands of the role outstrip the remuneration, they're going to be protecting their own skin and leaving the sheep to their fate. Jesus says he is the path to life. The alternative is the path to death. Jesus cares for the people who follow him. The Pharisees are ultimately in it for themselves. Finally, Jesus shows the scope of his care and the power behind it. If you've got your Bibles open there, just have a look there at verse 14 to 18. Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep know me, just as the Father knows me and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep too that are not of this sheepfold. I must bring them also. They too will listen to my voice, and there shall be one flock and one shepherd. The reason my Father loves me is that I lay down my life only to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. This command I received from my Father. See, Jesus shows the scope of his care and the power behind it. The relationship that Jesus has with his sheep, it's personal. It's a love that is seen in his willingness to lay down his life for his sheep. And it's not just personal with a few people, it's expansive. When Jesus talks about having sheep not of this fold, he's referring to the fact that he hasn't just come to lead 
Israel, the Jews, but people from every nation and culture. Uh, No matter how much of an outsider you feel, Jesus' care extends to you as well. A personal love, willing to lay down his life in order that you may have life and have it to the full. And what's more, Jesus has the power to do it. You know, it's all well and good to say that Jesus knows and loves his sheep and will lay down his life for them. But it's all a bit useless if he lays down his life and that's it. I mean, he's no longer going to be a shepherd. He'd be dead. You can't lead and love and care for your sheep if you're dead. But Jesus says he doesn't just lay down his life. He also has power to take it up again, to continue leading his sheep. So just to draw some of those things together, Jesus is the one who knows those who follow him and he knows them intimately, personally. What's more, he's a leader who gives eternal life to those who follow him and he does it by laying down his life for them. But more than that, he has such power over life that he's not only able to give it, he can take it up again himself. But it's also worth noting what Jesus, it's also worth really just noting what Jesus is offering if you follow him. Salvation, life to the full, a leader who knows you intimately and lays down his life for you in order that you may have that life to the full. And if Jesus is the source of life and the only way to it, no wonder the alternative is described as robbers. Thieves, hired hands who don't really care. However genuine they might think they are, they don't have life. They can't give life. And so they can't be leading people to life. The only place they can be leading, if it's not to Jesus, is destruction. Is Jesus worth following? Well, it seems like it should be a no-brainer, but... Opinions were divided. The Jews who heard him were divided. Many of them said, he's demon-possessed, raving mad. Why listen to him? But others said, these are not the sayings of a man possessed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of a blind? Opinions were divided. We've considered Jesus' argument over who is worth following. He said, I am the one who gives life. The alternative is only going to lead you to death. And we've also seen two responses. There seems to be something to him, or he's a madman. Jesus has made some big claims. Should we be following Jesus? Well, as we continue into the second half of the passage, point two, the story skips forward about a month to the festival of dedication, or the title that we might be a bit more familiar with, Hanukkah. Uh, In brief, Uh, Hanukkah celebrated the rededication of the temple. Uh, A little over 150 years before Jesus, uh, the Jews were facing oppression from a foreign power, uh, one of the remnants of the empire of Alexander the Great. And when, after a season of oppression, uh, the Maccabees were successful in defeating the opposition forces, uh, it was seen as a great act of God rescuing Israel from their enemies. And so Hanukkah that celebrated uh, this time and the rededication of the temple, it was seen as a time of hope that God would rescue them again. So that's the, the time setting, and Jesus is in the temple, 
the part of the focus of this uh, ceremony, and he's walking along Solomon's Colonnade. Now we have a photo of the temple, it'll come up on the screen there. Uh, Solomon's Colonnade, you can see behind the temple structure, all those kind of columned, covered area just behind it. Uh, that's Solomon's Colonnade, and it wraps around the side. Uh, so that's where Jesus is kind of walking around. Uh, so, you, you know, that, that's where, how they've been able to reconstruct the temple. That's where uh, Jesus is at the moment in this story. And as we see in verse 24, uh, the Jews there, they gathered around Jesus. They encircled him saying, how long are you going to keep us in suspense? If you are the Messiah, God's rescuing king, tell us plainly. The people want to know, is Jesus the one we should follow? See, they have expectations of what God's rescuing king would do. And it's not clear to them whether Jesus is the one they are looking for. Well, Jesus' answer is pretty straight down the line. Have a look at it with me from verse 25. Jesus answered, I did tell you, but you did not believe. The works I do in my Father's name testify about me, but you do not believe because you are not my sheep. My sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one shall snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my father's hand. I and the father are one. Uh, so first there in verse 25, the problem is not Jesus' clarity. Jesus has been clear. I mean, we just saw him claim to be the good shepherd. He might not have used the word Christ, but Christ or Messiah and the good shepherd, the two are basically synonymous. But more than that, from the wedding at Cana and the miracle of the, uh, of the, of the wine, turning water into wine to the healing of the blind man that we saw last week, the miracles, the signs that Jesus have done have all pointed to things that were expected of the Christ, God's rescuing king. Jesus has been clear about who he is in what he has said and what he has done. So verse 26 to 27, we see the problem is not Jesus' clarity. The problem is that they actually aren't interested in listening to what he has to say. Uh, given the context of Hanukkah and them talking to Jesus in the temple, I wonder if John is drawing our attention to the fact that these people have expectations of what the Christ will do. And Jesus confuses them. See, on the one hand, they can see there's evidence that he is from God. But there are things about him that just don't sit comfortably with them. And they have problems like the Romans still being here, still this oppressive force, like at the time of the Maccabees. And Jesus just doesn't seem interested in solving the problem of the Romans. But if Jesus is God's rescuing king, well, they need to be listening to him. They need to be getting in line behind him. But they aren't, which is a real tragedy because... In verse 28 to 30, Jesus outlined that he is offering eternal life that cannot be taken away. And it's a rock-solid certainty because of Jesus' unique relationship with God. Jesus and the Father are one. See, if Jesus is the Christ, they should be listening to him. But they seem to have their own ideas of what the Christ should be doing. And they're missing out. 
Well, as the story continues, their frustration boils over into hostility, and we see with even greater clarity that this crowd is not actually interested in following Jesus. The crowd pick up stones to lynch him, but Jesus, the good shepherd, keeps engaging with them. He keeps reasoning with them so that they might see who he is and genuinely follow him. And Jesus has a three-step defense he wants them to consider. And we're going to skim over this section a little bit. Uh, so, you know, you may end up having questions that you might want to uh, chat to me about later or, or something. But uh, we'll just look at the three-step defense that Jesus offers. Firstly, verse 32, look at my works. They are the works of the Father. And the retort is, well, we're not upset about your works, but your words. It was blasphemous to make, uh, for a man to make himself out to be God, which is somewhat ironic since Jesus was God who had made himself man. But they're not upset about what Jesus has done, but what he has said. And so Jesus says, uh, quotes Psalm 82, and he says, well, look, Scripture can refer to kings and rulers as gods. And so if I'm God's rescuing king, if I am the Christ, as you're asking, I have every right to be called God's son. And so then the question is to go back to the works. Are they the works of the Father? If they are, then I am God's son. Why are you angry? You see, they wanted to know if Jesus was the Christ. Jesus has affirmed it and then some. In fact, Jesus' claim has gone far beyond their initial clarification question. Not only is he the Christ, but his relationship with the Father is so entwined he can say they are one. But they're not actually interested in following Jesus. They have their own picture of the Christ, and Jesus doesn't fit it. Once again, they try to seize him. They wanted to know if Jesus was the Christ uh, because they had expectations of what God and his king would be like, and they wanted to know if Jesus would meet those expectations. So they try to seize him, but Jesus slips through their hand, and he leaves and heads back across the Jordan, back to where John was baptising, back to where it all began. And it seems like a kind of depressing end to the story. You know, Jesus, if he is the Christ, he doesn't seem like a very impressive Christ. Except when you look at what happens, Jesus is right. Did you notice they tried to seize him, but he slipped through their grasp? As intimidating as this mob was, the fact that they had encircled him, the power of their hands was not able to contend with the power of the hand of God who had Jesus in his hand. In fact, remember Jesus had said earlier, no one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. Despite the hostility and the power of the mob, Jesus is in control of the situation here. He is the one with real power. But second, we do see people coming to Jesus. As he returns to the far side of the Jordan, there at the end of the passage, we see people believing in him. His sheep do hear his voice and they do start to follow him. Well, as we've looked at this story or these stories, we've seen Jesus, his, Jesus challenge his audience to consider who they are following that he is the one worth following. But what about for us today? Well, as we've been 
looking at this passage and teasing it apart, there's actually a lot that gets thrown up for us to consider, more than we can do justice to in the time we have left. But perhaps a few questions are worth uh, teasing out. And perhaps the most obvious one is, well, who will you follow? Jesus drew a sharp contrast between himself, the good shepherd who brings us life, and the Pharisees, the thieves and robbers who lead to death. I doubt there are too many of us today who are considering following the Pharisees, but the distinction between Jesus and the alternative is as sharp today as it was then. Because many people still claim to have answers for life and meaning. Jesus makes the staggering claim that he alone can bring the fullness of life and eternity with God. And if he is right, that means that the alternatives no matter how genuine they might think they are, no matter what short-term benefits they may offer and in some ways deliver on, they don't have life in them and they cannot give life. So they can't be leading you to life. Who will you follow? But maybe a more searching question for us to wrestle with is, who do you want to follow? Or if you're talking with friends or relatives or family, colleagues, and want to take the question a bit deeper, uh, maybe a better way to phrase it for them is, what is the good life that you pursue? Or something along those lines. What's the good life you pursue? Who do you want to follow? Because I suspect that whatever the particular manifestation, whatever the thing that you are pursuing, the thing you want to follow is, whether it's a, a good house, a successful career, good relationships, money in the bank, whatever it is, most of them will boil down to a combination of Security, significance, and serenity. That we will feel secure, that we will feel significant, and we'll have peace, be able to live well. You know, just like the crowd that surrounded Jesus wanted to know if he was the Christ, but they were only interested in so far as Jesus could give them what they wanted. What is it that you are pursuing? We have the same danger today. We might claim to follow Jesus, but actually be pursuing our own agenda. You know, instead of listening to him and what his agenda is, we're more focused on living the life that we want, seeking security, significance, and serenity in things that can't ultimately deliver them. So for those of us who do follow Jesus, we need to remember two things. On the one hand, none of these alternatives, whether it's a house, a career, relationships, money, or alternative philosophies or ideas, none of of the, the things like the house, the career, the relationships, none of them are bad inherently. But as we continue through life, we need to remember they cannot give life. Whatever promises of life to the full they offer, and perhaps in some limited ways deliver on, death colors everything. Everything that they offer ultimately has an expiry date. What is it that you want to follow. We also need to remember Jesus' words because they give great comfort even in the tough seasons of life and particularly when following Jesus seems like the foolish option, like the, the, the bad alternative. Because as we listen to Jesus' words, he reminds us that Jesus is the one who gives us eternal life, that Jesus knows us personally and deeply, That Jesus invites us to know him personally as well. That Jesus cares for you and loves you so much that he laid down his life for you. 
and that Jesus has the power to give us life because he is one with the source of all life. And we know it because not only did he lay down his life for us, but he took it back up again when he was raised from the dead. And so for followers of Jesus, no matter how difficult our circumstances are now, we do have life to the full in a sense now because the best is yet to come and that flows back into the present so that whatever we are going through now, we can have certainty and hope as we follow the Good Shepherd, knowing that he is leading us to eternal life with God in heaven. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you that Jesus is the Good Shepherd who gives us life, eternal life, who knows us personally and deeply, who wants us to know him, who cares for us and loves us so much that he laid down his life for us and didn't stay dead, but was raised back to life and so gives us confidence of the life that we have in him. Father, help us to recognise the alternatives that we are tempted to pursue instead of Jesus. Help us to recognise where we're more interested in our own agenda than Jesus' agenda, that we might listen to him and truly be his sheep. Amen.